Good morning. This is Jim the Keys Bartender. If you're not familiar with Keys Bartender, it's a show about bartending and Keys life. I'm coming to you from a beautiful Key Largo. <clears throat> I wonder how my voice sounds right now. I got to listen to my podcast more often. This is what I say to myself sometimes. Today, I wanted to talk to you about teamwork Even though that sounds like one of those old axioms you'd say to people, you know, teamwork. It's all about teamwork. Teamwork, teamwork this, teamwork that, blah, blah, blah. You know, giving a motivational speech before work and all that stuff. Talking about how cohesive your team is, how important every member is, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's going to be one of the shortest sections of the bartending uh, show where I'm talking about the bar. But teamwork is critical, is critical as a bartender. Sometimes the way people are designed, the way we are designed as humans, we are, I think our default setting is egocentric. We're just so centered on our importance. And it's just the way it is, the way our consciousness is grounded. It's not grounded into, it's not naturally the greater good. That's the reason why when you, if you study anthropology or something like that, you'll find out how the development of human societies began. Again, there's small family groups, then clans, then tribes, and then growing into bigger things. People innately in the beginning, in the, let's say, among their basic groups, care most about the people they're associated with, let's say, familial ties. And then you can extend those ties because they found that, you know, the more people you had, the more securities provided, more efficiency in your uh, just gathering, hunting, gathering, and just developing, teaching, protecting, defense, home building, delivery of services, all that stuff. Well, that works in work, too. So we we got to expand ourselves past those egocentric default settings we have. I know it sounds like, oh my God, why are you talking about this frou-frou bullshit and stuff like that? Well, you got to really own it. You got to own it and see how important it is. When you're working in a place, obviously, if you're um, working at, let's say, in Key West, in Key West on the Val Street, there's a bar called The Smallest Bar. And it's literally about seven feet wide. It's down at the end of Duval Street uh, near the Hogs Breath Tavern. I think it's part of the Hogs Breath, if I'm not correct. But it's just like an alleyway that leads off to it. And their liquor license extends all the way to the street on Duval Street. And you got this tiny little bar. And it doesn't have a front door. It has about two stools. So you can just walk in there. It's an always, you know, it's a place where you stop in and have a drink, right? Now... That's a one-person bar. Now, I don't know if someone comes over from the hog's breath or anything like that, but that teamwork, I understand when it comes to teamwork, it's a teamwork is your left hand has to agree with your right hand and your brain and your eyes and your legs. That's your whole team. Yeah, I get it. Then you're an army of one. It's very important that you're very efficient, you do your thing, and uh, I guess it does. You know, per person, that, that place... Uh, percentage-wise on a busy day, that racks up some major uh, revenue, right? And 
So, but in a team environment, whether it's only two people or a hundred people, when you got everyone hitting on the same cylinders, it's magical. It is. Once they know each other, know the expectations and things like work, not just the bartender. We have a tendency to think as a bartender, we're just so central to the operation of wherever we are. Like on a Friday, on a Thursday, tonight, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I'm the uh, evening bartender. But I have people uh, that I work with that can make their own drinks too. And in the beginning, I didn't tell you, my ego, I wanted to make every drink. And when someone, when a server came back and made their own drink for a table, it kind of bugged me for a while. But then I realized I got people, I got to take care of the bar. I got to take care of the rest of the restaurant and maybe take a phone call or to go order. I should be thankful for that help. And eventually I did. And I said, really, they take the load off. They see they see what I'm doing when I'm busy, and they lend a hand. They go and get their own drink, grab their own beer. Uh, they ask me if I'm ready for an order. If I'm not ready for an order, boom, take it. Now, we're going over to a POS system. That's point of sale. So everything's going to come out by a ticket, which is going to be a lot easier for me, I think. I think we'll find out very shortly in the next week or two of whether... What's that going to look like? But having people backing you up, having people do it. And conversely, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I'm trying to keep it cohesive. When a um, server gets in the weeds, they got a lot of people they're taking care of. And if food comes up, I have I can see their ticket. I can see where it goes. I can see there's no, you know, check it for special instructions. And I start delivering the food. And that's... If I have the capability to do it, meaning if I have the time, sometimes it's all hands. Everyone's getting hit at the same time. But when you're working with a tight team, anytime you got a spare second, you're looking around to see how to alleviate some of the toil or work of your fellow worker. And from the to the eyes of the people on the other side, they see people that are hustling, people that are backing each other up, seeing people say, hey, they're not only taking care of uh, their own thing, like the bartender's taking care of the people at the bar, but he's running drinks to the tables. And that, you know, people really appreciate that in general, not in particular. You got people, uh, patrons that are all about themselves too. They don't care how busy you are. They want what they want when they want it. But there's a lot of people, the people that really know what's going on when they see people working hard together they it enhances their experience and when you enhance someone's experience at a place you raise your reputation you raise the quality you can turn a family restaurant into something truly unique a place that works you know a place that strives to be better and, and then your co-workers, when your co-workers, you got the patrons to see it, you have the co-workers to see it. They try their best. When they see you working hard, if you have a healthy sense of self-respect, let's say, self-worth, self-esteem, you want to do your best when you see other people doing your best.
That's the kind of motivation I use when I'm doing my spin class, when I'm leading the spin class, when I'm teaching. I hate saying teaching spin because once people know how to do spin, and that's indoor cycling, once they know, you know the techniques, and it's not that difficult. You can learn them in a couple days. I mean, your body learns them and you get comfortable doing it. And then it's just you building up for it. But once uh, they learn all those things, I'm just looking at ways to motivate them. And I know motivating them is motivating people to do well next to other people. And they want to see that that's that's the, the psychology behind it. No one wants to be the one picked last on the kickball team, right? When they're choosing up sides, they want to see self-worth. They say, well, I'm valuable. I work hard. They want to, be, they want to view themselves as I'm a, I'm a valuable choice on this group. So that sense of self-esteem, self-respect plays out in the workplace. And once at the end of the day, and this is going to sound like an empty uh, observation, but it's not. It truly isn't. Once you've tried your best, I'm not saying you're going to work yourself to death, but you work smart, you worked unselfishly, worked in a group, you, you appreciate it more. Now, it, it's got to suck when you have, you're working with a bunch of narcissists. Is Everyone's a narcissist. Now, some, some managers um, use that technique to try and say, I want you to be, you know, the best, this, that. And a lot of times they're encouraging people to be sabotaging, sabotaging their coworker. You know, you want to raise them up. You want know, a good place. It's hard. It's hard to really try to describe it. When you say that everyone does well, you want everyone to do well, you think you're taking away personal achievement. You know, that's not how really successful teams work. And you got to think of it as a team. It works in everything from companies to militaries to educational facilities or institutions. I was going to say facilities, but institutions. When the whole group is doing well, it drives everyone forward. You don't need one person getting A pluses on the, the test and then everyone else failing. You want everyone to have an A plus. Failing that, let's say a B, a B plus, and everyone performing at a B, B plus level. Obviously, it's not as good as perform everyone performing at an A plus level. But if everyone is performing at an A plus level, you know, someone may argue and say, "Well, who's? I mean, how the how do you measure achievement if everyone's doing excellent? Well, it's everyone does well." And I'm boiling down the last group I'm going to say here. If everyone's doing well and everyone's trying their best and supporting each other, it makes the whole operation look effortless and smoothly run. And it does add to less stress and adds more to your sense of accomplishment at the end of the day. And that's in the end of it. Don't we want, if you don't want to be fulfilled by your work, if you don't need to be reinvigorated by your work, at least do you need, you don't need to be drained spiritually, physically, mentally. 
You want to just be, I accomplished something today. You know, supremely, I think, if you come home at the end of the day and say, well, I did a good job today. We all did a good job. I think we were, you know, that, you, you don't, the, the horrible thing about the human experience sometimes is we never really know the full impact that we have on the people we come in contact with throughout the day. We don't know how we touch them, how we motivate them, how bright a spot we are to them, how important we are for that person's daily sense of well-being. So you don't know that at the end of the day, but you can imagine if you come in contact with a lot of people that you do add to their lives. Some people live in their own worlds. You can't do anything about that. But then there's others that live in this world and experience the people around them. And that's the ones we got to hope that we touch. Getting on to that, I was getting ready this, uh, this upcoming week. I know I shouldn't be saying this, but I'll be going on vacation. I'm not going to say when, but it's going to be early morning. I'm going to go for about three days. I have a family wedding and it's coming up this, uh, you know, one of the busiest travel th- uh, weeks of the year, right? And I'm going to be flying. And what do I start hearing the last two days about all the troubles with our uh, air travel delays? I experienced it two weeks ago when I sent my girls, my wife and daughter, off to Poland. You know, the delays, and I've, I, I really, I viscerally felt when I looked at the airport, looked at the long lines, looked at the tension. You know, when people are traveling domestically, I guess it's all a matter of magnitudes. Some people don't travel that often. Just getting on a plane is the worst thing, the most major thing, the most important thing that happened to them in their whole life, the first travel. Now, for people that travel regularly, it's rudimentary. It happens a lot. You travel four, five, six, 20 times a year by um, you know, it's just what you do. Every so often you run in delays, you're going to make it, blah, blah, blah. But the less frequently you travel and the further you travel and how significant that travel is affects the magnitude of the tension. So my girls traveling to my Abby going and my daughter and my sister-in-law going to Poland, which is approximately... I don't know what to say, 4,000 miles, 4,500 miles, could be more. Uh, that's significant. And when there's a delay and there's a connection and stuff like that, it adds to that frustration, sometimes turmoil. You know, pre-COVID, a lot of times pre-COVID, you have a tendency to uh, reminisce about the ease of things in the past. And we have a tendency to um, exploit the current negativity and make it seem like it's the worst thing that ever happened in traveling. Like the worst thing that ever happened is delays that show up. 
You know, people say, oh my God, I had to wait eight hours, blah, 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 blah. And some that my flight was canceled, blah, 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 blah. This, that, that, and the other thing. Now, let me remind you. Now, it is not, um, I do reference this all the time and open my eyes, the concept. There was a book that came out in the 90s, I think 90s, early 2000s, maybe. It's called Freakonomics. It was in the 90s. And in, in Freakonomics, one of the concepts was we have a tendency to really make overblown the things that happen to us personally and ex- uh, exploit things that are, let's say, good fodder for public consumption. Now that sounds like that, like shark attack. When we, now we're a country, now you gotta remember this. You gotta be comfortable with numbers when you talk about it. We're a country of, let's say, 335 million people. Let me repeat that, 335 million people, each with their own experiences, right? And things that happen. Now you give 335 million opportunities for things to happen, almost everything will happen at least once. Someone will win, well, obviously multiple people will win a lottery. Uh, Multiple people will have been struck by lightning. Uh, Some people will have, I'm gonna get through some of the negatives. Some people, uh, there's a certain number of people today in the United States that will fall off ladders and break their arm bones, you know? And certain people fall off ladders and break their uh, leg bones, like their tibia. It's harder to break the femur, right? But, you know, there's a certain amount of people that do. In this country, because of the numbers, the numbers, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people climbing ladders, and there's going to be a couple people that fall, and they're going to break break something. Just, it's by the numbers. There's going to be people painting today. Let's say, I can guarantee you this, but it would be very hard to prove it. Out of 335 million people, let's say, today, there's 200,000, maybe 500,000 people painting. There'll be a number of those people painting that will spill a whole bucket of paint on the floor. And that's the law of numbers. So when I get back to shark attack, whenever we see a shark attack, it lands at the front page top of the news. Shark attack right up there. Shark attack with a death, national, international news. So you see three, four, five stories of people with shark attacks. There must be, you must think every time you go in the water, a shark's out there waiting to eat you. That's not true. Just out of numbers, it's probably the same or, you know, you have a greater chance of winning the lottery than being attacked by sharks. Now, there's certain places, obviously, that may be more prone to it. And then you raise the possibility. So all the things that occur just seem to be overblown when there's a car, a multiple car accident, when there's a truck running into a, a car, a, a, a car getting hit by a train. So that so we see that in the news. It expands the occurrence, meaning this must happen a lot more than we think it is. That's why, you know, like a serial murder. Think of there's a serial killer in New York. And he comes through your window at night and he strangles you, right? 
And let's say it's he only works in brownstones and stuff like that. Well, granted, you hear about that and it's horrible news. It is horrible news. And it's not. I just made that up right now. Now, it could be happening right now, but it probably isn't. There'll be someone, if they put that in the news, there'll be someone in Iowa City that will think, I better lock my window because look what happened there. That's an effect like they're talking about in that book I was talking. So you don't, you don't have, it's not the possibility that it'll happen to you. It's that there's a, it's happened somewhere. And the same thing happens with delays and things like that flying when you hear of an aircraft incident, a close call. There are tens of thousands of flights every day. I don't know how many in the United States. Commercial aircraft, Christ, it could be 100,000. I better check to see that. I mean, 100,000, a little high, but it's in the tens of thousands. I'm, I'm thinking averaging like 50, 60 people. Um, let's, say, let's say there's 2 million people on the move every day. 2 million people. That might be 2 million people. That could be... Let's say there's 30,000 flights in the United States every day. Now, in the course of a year, if you think about it, how many commercial craft airlines have crashed with all aboard in the United States this year? A big one. Now, I can't think of any. There could have been one. There could have been one, but I can't think of any. So that means there was probably over a million flights in the United States this year. One in a million. And none came down. That's, you know, you have less odds of just dying in your sleep. You have more odds of dying in your sleep, I'm just saying, than a plane crash. And we just get over-exaggerated about that. So you're added to that when you go to the travel. I know, I just went through this whole thing. So my mind expands on this when I see that there's a bunch of delays because there's uh, thunderstorms in New York. It happened two days ago. It was the beginning of the July 4th travel um, rush. And they shut down all the airports in New York or delayed or canceled flights. And that caused a chain reaction across the United States, any place with the connections or had origination flights from that area, it just affects it, cascades, especially when it's big airports. When it's these small feeder airports are uh, uh, affected, not so much. So here I am getting ready and I'm thinking, wow, I'm gonna, what? It's gonna be five days, it was five, six days later. I think it should be cleared up. It should be. We all know that that doesn't happen. But I have a tendency to think that once things start, people take remedial action and it's less likely to happen. So I just got to learn to relax. So you don't need that. So when my girls had the delays and stuff like that, when they were going to Poland, they had a 
uh, hours delay and waiting. I'm feeling it like it's me waiting for the flight. And I'm thinking in my head, what are my girls going to do? They're going to, my, my wife and my daughter, where are they going to, are they going to have to sleep at the airport tonight? Or are they going to sleep at a hotel? Should I go back? But what if the fl- flight's coming back? And going out two hours, do we have to go through security again and stuff like that? Are they going to be able to get on if, it, if it's going to be, you know, it's, all these thoughts are going in my head. And I'm not even on the flight. Well, I ended up getting there. They got out there a couple hours later. They had to couple, straighten out a couple things. I couldn't do anything for them. Really, from here. I just had to hope for the best. And I'm going to do the same for myself. I'm going to be leaving early in the morning. I have to I said, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna be working the night before and I'm leaving early in the morning. I mean I'm gonna be leaving my house around quarter after three. I'm gonna have my luggage packed in the car, ready to go. And hopefully I get up there at four thirty, my flight's at five thirty. Next cross fingers, right? And another thing, right? <clears throat> when you're traveling in the summer. I'm going to a wedding. There's going to there's a law going through uh, what's well, being proposed that it's called the simplification of fee structure or something like that, similar to that. Meaning, nowadays because customers wanted more leeway on the things they wanted and not wanted, and they streamlined the process. They thought they were streamlining. They said, oh, well, listen, we'll just make it more of a buffet. If you want to fly, don't want any luggage, just your carry-on, blah, blah, blah. This is the price. Now, if you want to pick your seat, this is the price. If you want to do another carry-on, this is the price. If you want to check your luggage, this is the price. If There you go. You want early boarding. And you have all these things that come in priority boarding, things like that, which I think is bullshit. You're arriving the same place at the same time. And that doesn't mean you get off at, uh, you know, if you, you, when you're getting off priority boarding, it works great when you're getting on the plane. It sucks when you're leaving. Okay? Now, if, obviously, if you're in front of the plane, you're getting off it anyway early. But a lot of times you get people to get up in front of you and stuff like that, and they're just not ready to go. Not ready to go. I, you know, there's, I get, I sound like I'm magnanimous. I sound like I care, but I have a, once you get in the plane, it's almost like Lord of the Flies. Once you get on the plane. I mean, every person for themselves. And sometimes you see these people that do carry on that can barely, that cannot lift their luggage. Now, if you cannot lift your luggage, they should allow, they, this is what they should do. <clears throat> One of the tests, and someone says, I'm going to be carrying this on. Can you lift that piece of luggage over your head? Now, obviously, if you need that luggage for, let's say, a medical device or something like that, obviously, that's a problem. But if you don't, they would say, well, you can't lift it. You're going to have to check it. And they go, why? Because you're not going to be able to remove from an overhead bin. Well, someone can help me. And he said, well, listen, you don't understand what it's like down in the plane. People are just getting off. They're standing up before they even get up to the, uh, up to the gate. What are you going to do? Where, where, where are you going, folks? You're getting up. You're standing there. You're blocking the people behind you, the people that are ready. You know, there's people that don't put things in overhead luggage. They just get their stuff on their bag and boom, boom, I'm ready to go. 
we're, we're getting, there's actually the possibility of people that just telecommute to work like that. They just fly. They go to work, they carry, they carry their stuff, they go in, you know, maybe briefcase, backpack, I'm there, I'm good to go. And they get up and they leave. But then you got the people that can't get the stuff out of the overhead bin. And they're just standing there. And they're blocking the progress of everyone else. Now, if you can't get your stuff out of the bin in a prompt manner, you should either wait or have someone with you that can do it. Because otherwise, if you can't get it out in a prompt manner, you should wait. I know, that sucks. And there's some cruel things out there. There's cruel things with air travel. Like the size of the seats. You know, people say, why, why should I have to buy two seats? And I say, well, listen, the seats are small now. If you don't, if you, you know, you may not, you may not be able to fit in it. It's not um, body shaming. It's just a fact of life. If you're seven foot six, chances are you're not going to fit in the, uh, you know, the 12th row center of a Southwest Airlines flight. You're going to need to get a, a seat with a little leg room. Or you're not going to be able to complain about that. It's just one of those things. You're going to have to pay for that seat. So you have the bill coming up with people breaking up. I'm getting back to the subject. Getting uh, Breaking down the fee structure and saying, listen, when you buy a ticket, this is what you get. And now it's tiered. They have basic, basic economy. Basic economy is just your carry-on, your, your personal item. And then you have to add that. Then you have to add a seat. Now, when you're traveling by yourself and you got plenty of time, you don't have to worry about connections. And you're young. And petite. Let's say petite. It doesn't really matter. Right? You just get in your hotel. I don't have no hurry. Just get there. Oh, yeah, it's going to take an extra 20 minutes if I, if I get to see. I'm going to be sitting next, you know, sitting in between two people. So what? I can do it. It's a two, two and a half hour flight. Like a two hour and a half hour flight. I always had this thing. If you're traveling less than three hours, you could sit almost anywhere. That's the way I view it. You get up an hour and 15 minutes. Fine. Some people can't do that. I understand that. For me, once you get to two and a half hours, it's kind of a critical point. As I get older, I like a little more room. I don't like someone moving their seat back. So I usually get a front seat. I'll pay for the difference because I realize I really enjoy that. Not necessarily getting off first, which I do get off first. I just, that's just my preference now. And, you know, you always see these flight advertised. Fly round trip, $100. No, it's not $100. It's going to be $300. After you pick your seat, your luggage, this, that. Oh, yeah, it was five, six hours. Do you want anything to drink? you want a water? you want a soda? Do you want to use the bathroom? And don't get me started on the bathroom now. Now they're like a little low-budget closet with the folding doors. I'm a... Six foot three, around 220 now. Relatively, I wouldn't call myself svelte, svelte, but I'm fit, I'm tight. You know, don't have a big waist. Holy moly. I go, I am not the biggest guy on the plane or the biggest person. And I get in there, my shoulders are cramped, my hips are cramped and stuff like that. I do not have big hips. 
how do they, I do feel for these people. I see a big person get up. I said, what are they going to do? Where are they going? It's going to be like a magic trick. I've seen them walk up to the front of the, uh, the bathroom. I said, they're going to, they got the accordion door. They're going to push that. They're going to squeeze in there. Now, if they go in front way, how do they turn around? You know, if they have to turn around. Uh, I have yet to have to, only once, had to sit on the bathroom toilet. Only once on an international flight. Because I have a tendency not to eat too much when I'm on flight. I do not want anything. I'm not one of these people that live dangerously by eating food that's maybe exotic and too zestful. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't want any problems like that. Who wants to have any intestinal distress when they're on a flight? You're already going to have a little, because of the pressure changes and stuff like that. That's just what happens. But you get in these little accordion things, and I'm just looking at these people. I go, boy, this is amazing. How is this person going to get in? Let alone when they're in, because the doors collapse inwards, the folding doors on some of these low-budget airlines, they collapse in, and they take some of the room out of the inside room. Like, they collapse inwards, meaning the fold goes in. It doesn't fold out into the pathway of, you know, where the, you can walk by in the front of the plane, and you see it all the time. And I said, well, if you get a big person walking, how do they open the door to get out? It's like putting a cue ball in your mouth. You could probably force it in, but how are you going to get it back out? And that, I mean, I'm always amazed and i actually very empathetic when I see that. And it just makes me feel, um, whenever I say, wow, it was tight getting in there, I said, holy moly, what's that person going to do? They're not going to get out of there. But they always do. They always do. So don't make much out of it. Remember about the teamwork thing? This Jim the Keys bartender. I'm probably going to do, um, I maybe do one show. I'll do it off my phone. I'll do some traveling thing. I know I always promise this when I do it. I always promise I'm going to do it. But I'm going to a wedding. I might as well do it, right? And I got some, you know, interesting task because I'm the uncle of the bride. Not that that's, I'm not like Michael Scott. I'm not going to over uh, blow my importance as a member of the thing, but I did get asked to walk my sister down the aisle, which is something. I'm really surprised. In the old days, when I was drinking, there would have been a good chance by the time walking someone out, I would have had at least three, four drinks in my... Not, not that something would happen there. Usually something happens at the, the reception. But even then, I'm, I'm usually best behaved at these family things, most of the time. And nowadays, I'm, I'm definitely well behaved. I'm kind of boring. So I have to allude to the fact that I might. You know, it could have been much more different if Uncle Jim was drinking, you know? So uh, this is Jim the Keys bartender wishing you safe travels this week. Be careful around fireworks. Remember, if it's lit, most likely it's going to explode. I just let it go. Walk away from it. Walk away from the fireworks. If it doesn't go off, wait for a long time. Even douse it. Give it up. When I say douse it, throw some water on it. You do not want to be walking around live fireworks and have one go off in your face. Um, I guess that's a warning right there. 
You know, and I was just talking about freedom. That's something that really happens. That's, that's something that you have a greater chance of being hurt by fireworks you bought than fireworks someone else bought. Well, depending on what their intent is. You know, if they're pointing it at you. This is Jim. Yeah, don't let people point fireworks at you. Roman candles. Don't get into a Roman candle fight. You ever do that? That was, that was stupid. That was stupid as a kid. Yep. I'm going to say that. You know, bottle rockets. Roman candle fights and all that stuff. Luckily, I don't have a lot of kids listening to this, so they're not going to do this. And, you know, I hope you don't remember in your head when you're drinking on July 4th, they go, oh, Jim says to do this. No, I did not say to do it. I said it was stupid. So don't remember it that way. It's cool to do that. It's not cool. So this is Jim the Keys bartender. Be safe. Talk to you later. Bye.